We do appreciate the presence of each one this morning. We're glad you're here. I know we have some visiting with us today, some uh, family of uh, members here. We're glad that you're here. We have some that I think are away. It's a holiday weekend, and so that can be expected, I suppose, some visiting and some away, but uh, we're just glad and grateful for the presence of each one. And very grateful for those who have led us in our worship today, the preparation that has gone into it and the good way in which uh, we've been led and the good participation in worship from everyone. The other day, uh, Dustin commented on the singing that uh, we, we do here, and I have to agree, I, I, think, it's, uh, I think it's great. Very encouraging uh, to uh, hear people singing out and uh, singing strong, singing together, uh, just uh, great encouragement. And so I, I appreciate not only those who lead, but those who participate from the pew. And of course, that's what worship is meant to be, isn't it? It's not a spectator uh, event, it's a participation event. And even during the lesson, uh, we hope that each one will participate uh, by listening, taking notes, being very careful uh, and uh, discerning the things that have been said. I hope that it's done with a good readiness of mind, searching the scriptures to see if the things are so. Uh, just a word about the bulletin. Uh, we do have a bulletin on the table out here in the back. We had some copier trouble during the week. Wasn't quite sure if it was going to work this morning, so I wanted to give the teachers of the classes the first crack at it. Uh, but uh, once that, uh, that, that hour had passed, I went ahead and copied the bulletin. So if you didn't get one on the way in, pick one up on the way out. And uh, so it's ready for you there. You know, the, the New Testament teaches that Jesus of Nazareth was born to a, a Jewish peasant woman who was a virgin named Mary in the city of Bethlehem during the reign of Augustus Caesar when Herod the Great was ruling over Judea in about the year 5 B.C. Somewhere I think the current opinion is between the years 4 and 6 B.C. So somewhere around the year 5 B.C., give or take a, a, a year. There are two accounts of the birth of Jesus in the Gospels. There's an account in the book of Matthew in chapters 1 and 2. There's also an account of the birth of Jesus in Luke chapters 1 and 2. But the story of Jesus doesn't begin with Mary giving birth to this child in the city of Bethlehem during the reign of Augustus Caesar. That, that's not when the story of Jesus begins. It actually begins before that. Now, I don't mean in order to understand the life of Jesus, we need to understand the life of his parents or the life of his grandparents or those who had begun, come before him in that way. The way that we might study the life of a historical figure in, in the world. And so if you want to understand Thomas Jefferson or Alexander Hamilton, you might need to look at their parents or their grandparents or their background in order to understand what motivated them throughout the course of their life. Now that's not what I mean when I say the story of Jesus begins before he was born in Bethlehem. You see, Jesus existed in heaven with the Father in glory before he was born into the world. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tells us that the ordinary order of things is the physical first and then the spiritual. But Christ is an exception to that because he existed in spirit first before he was physically born into the world. Now I want to just take a few minutes to read a few passages that will support that. 
John chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. And so when the world began, when uh, creation occurred, you see, the Word was already there. He was in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. And then verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh. There was a point in time when the Word that was became flesh. And so He was before He became flesh. He existed before He became flesh and dwelt among us. Verse 14 goes on to say, And we saw His glory, glorious of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Look at Philippians chapter 2, another passage that affirms we might sometimes call this the pre-existence of Christ, although that's, not, that's really kind of a misnomer, isn't it? <laughs> and so it just simply means before He became a man and came into the world, He already was in existence. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 5, "...have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who though, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptying himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of man. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross." And so he existed in the form of God, and then he came into the world in the appearance of man. And so, again, we see affirmed in the New Testament that the story of Jesus really begins even before his birth. Look at the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For by Him, that is by Christ, by the Son, all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And so, again, He is before all things. In fact, he is responsible for the existence of all things. Now this idea is even found in prophecy. If you go back to the Old Testament, to the book of Micah, Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 looks forward to the birth of Christ. As for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. That's a prophecy of Christ. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. And so here's Christ who's going to be in Bethlehem, going to be born in Bethlehem, but His goings forth are from eternity. And so we find that even in the prophets. And of course, Jesus Himself affirms this. We see, uh, note a couple of passages along those lines. John chapter 8 and verse 56. Jesus says, Abraham saw my day, and rejoiced. He saw my day and was glad. They questioned that. You're not even 50 years old yet. How have you seen Abraham? And Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. That's an interesting way of saying it, isn't it? He doesn't say, before Abraham was, I was. Before Abraham was, I am. And that, they got upset about that because of his use of the description, I am being applied to himself. We know the implication of that. They did as well. And they picked up stones to stone him. 
And then we looked at John 17 just a week or so ago, where Jesus prays to the Father before He goes to His crucifixion, Glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. And so we see Old Testament, New Testament, the words of Jesus, this affirmation that Jesus existed before He came into the world. Now that that raises a question in my mind. Jesus, here's the Son. He existed in eternity. He is with God. He is God. He is in glory with God. You can just imagine what that existence must have been like. And then He's born into the world where He lives for 30 years as just an ordinary Jewish man who's a carpenter. Then He begins to go from place to place teaching. There are a few that accept Him, but most people reject Him. He's ultimately betrayed by one of His own, nailed to a Roman cross, and killed. Why would He do that? (laughs) Why would He leave the glory of heaven and come and go through what He went through? Why would He Why would He come do that? We sing in the song sometimes, Why did my Savior come to earth? It's a good question, isn't it? Why did my Savior come to earth? Why why would He do that? Would you do that? (laughs) Would you leave the glory of heaven and come to this world and be treated the way they treated Christ? I imagine a lot of us would say, No way! (laughs) No way! But He did. Why, Why would He do that? Well, He gives us the answer Himself. We're going to look at the book of Mark. We're going to just look at four passages in the time that we have left this morning. And we're going to try to answer from these passages, we're going to try to answer this question. Why did He leave heaven and come to earth? Look at Mark chapter 1. In the very first miracle that is recorded in the book of Mark, Jesus casts out a demon. And so let's begin reading in verse 21. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and began to teach. They were amazed at his teaching, for he is teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I knew who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. They were all amazed, so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority commands even the unclean spirits. And they obey him. And so here Jesus encounters this man with an unclean spirit. And the unclean spirit asks the question, Have you come to destroy us? You know, in a sense, the answer to the question is yes. Have you come to destroy us? Yes, I have come to destroy you. <laughs> Why did He come? He came to reverse. He came to neutralize. He came to eliminate the work of Satan. There's no better way for Jesus to demonstrate His authority over evil than by casting out demons or unclean spirits. And He does this on several occasions. Mark chapter 5 and verse 1, he casts out a demon from a man. The demon identifies himself as legion. And sometimes in that passage, singular pronouns are used, and sometimes plural pronouns are used. And so sometimes it's he and him referring to the demon, and sometimes it's us. And so here's a man who apparently was 
was possessed by multiple demons. His name is Legion, which suggests multiple demons, and Jesus cast them out. Do you remember the story of the Syrophoenician woman? She's the woman that comes to Jesus, and uh, Jesus says to her, well, you know, it's, it's not appropriate to give the food meant for the children to the dogs. And you remember, this is the woman that said, yeah, I know that, but even the dogs get some of the crumbs that fall off the table. That woman's daughter, Mark tells us, was possessed by a demon or an unclean spirit. In Mark chapter 9, there is an especially violent case of a man who is possessed by an unclean spirit. In Mark chapter 3 and verse 11, we have kind of a, a general statement of people bringing their sick folk to Jesus and Him casting them out, and they would fall down before Him and shout, You are the Son of God. Now, I don't know a great deal about demon possession, so don't ask me any questions because I'm not going to know the answer, I don't think. But we do know that demons would be in a person. That's how they're described. They're in the people. You remember Jesus talks about the demon that's cast out and he goes to the waterless places and, and then he comes back with seven others and takes up their residence in, in a person. And we know that the demons then would speak and act through those people. The demon would force them to harm themselves, or they would speak through the individuals that they possessed. I don't think demon possession like this occurs today. I think that age of supernatural activity has, has concluded. But in demon possession, Satan sought to do and create as much chaos and hardship and suffering and injury and harm as possible on the victim. Now, look at a couple of descriptions. Mark chapter 9, for example, verses 17 and 18. One of the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son possessed with a spirit. It makes him mute. This demon makes him mute. Whenever it seizes it, it slams him to the ground. He foams at the mouth. He grinds his teeth. He stiffens out. And I told your disciples to cast it out, and they, they couldn't do it. So look at the... Now, I would like to suggest this is what Satan would do to every one of us if he could. <laughs> you know, the, the Lord limits the power of Satan and what's he, what he's able to do. The story of Job illustrates that. But I would say this is what he'd do to all of us if he could. And this is what he wants to do to us spiritually. That's uh, just what he wants to do to us spiritually. In verse 20 of Mark chapter 9, they brought the boy to Jesus when he saw him. Immediately the Spirit threw him into convulsion, falling to the ground. He began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. That's the kind of power that the demon has over people. Mark chapter 5, look, verses 2 through 5. When he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. He had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain. Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. And constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs. Imagine that. You're trying to sleep at night, and you can hear somebody out in the distance. They're just, they're howling. Oh, that's the demon at work in the man. Gashing himself with stones. And so the demon wants to create as much chaos hardship, suffering, injury, as much of that as possible. So Jesus, the demon, 
He encounters Jesus here in Mark chapter 1, and, and he says, I, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Have you come to destroy us? And Jesus, I think the, the implication at least is, is yes. Now, it's not that he's going to cause the unclean spirit to go out of existence, but he's come to undo or to reverse what Satan has done in the world. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8, The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. And so if the demon wanted to create as much chaos as possible in a person's life, you see, Jesus came to bring peace into our lives. If the demon sought to create instability, Jesus comes to bring stability into our lives and undo or reverse the work that Satan would do in our lives. Look at a few verses along those lines. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, all who are weary and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Now, people that were possessed by demons on those occasions, they weren't at rest, were they? Jesus said, I came to give you rest. If you come after me, I'll give you rest. Turn over to the Gospel of John, John chapter 14, and look what Jesus says in that place. Verse 1, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Verse 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I'll come to you. If you love me, you'd have rejoiced because I go to the Father. Because the Father is greater than I. I'm leaving peace with you. You remember the words in uh, the Paul's letter to the Philippians, Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 6, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Look at Galatians chapter 5, and beginning in verse 22, as he lists there the, the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And you might remember in 1 Timothy chapter 2 when Paul is teaching us to pray for all men, for kings, and all those who are in a position of authority that we might lead a tranquil and quiet life. Now, people that were possessed by demons were not leading a tranquil and quiet life, were they? And so if Satan came to bring confusion and instability and chaos as much as possible into a person's life, Jesus came to reverse that and bring us peace and rest and tranquility and stability. One other passage, Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 5. Paul writes, For even though I was absent in body, or I, I am absent in body, nevertheless I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and stability of your faith in Christ. When a person lives in rebellion against God, contrary to the life God intends, chaos Distress, instability often result. 
Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 15 says, you know that passage, Proverbs 13, 15? The way of the transgressor is hard. If you're living a life that's in rebellion to God, you're bringing chaos upon yourself. You're bringing instability upon yourself. You're bringing constant trouble upon yourself. And that's the way Satan would have it, as much confusion and chaos and disorder as possible. How about your life? Is your life in chaos and distress and instability? Is it because of sin, a lifestyle contrary to the life God would have us lead? What do you want? Do you want stability or, and peace, or do you want chaos and confusion? If you say, I want peace, I want stability, well then Christ is your answer. The order and stability and peace of Christ, however, comes only through consistent godly living. Now I want to make that point. And so Christ can give you rest, Christ can give you stability and tranquility, but it will only come to you through consistent godly living. I've seen, I think, on more than one occasion, a mom has a teenage son, and he's getting into trouble, and he's being rebellious and hard to get along with. He's staying out late at night. He's hanging out with the wrong people. And so she, 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 she wants to get him into a different kind of life. And so she brings him to church one time, thinking that's going to do the trick. <laughs> and it doesn't happen like that, does it? And when that doesn't do the trick, well, then she kind of gives up on going to church. Now, you, now Christ can get you out of that lifestyle of confusion and difficulty and, and self-harm. He can get you out of that, but it takes consistent godly living. Now, not just haphazard or sporadic or every now and then, or I'm going to try that and see if it works if it doesn't work the first time I try it, I'm going to reject it. Now, consistent godly living over a long period of time. And you can leave that life of instability behind. That's what Satan wants in your life. And you can have the peace and the tranquility and the rest that Christ has come to bring you. But we must live the life, a godly life, and we must live it consistently. I thought it was interesting in Galatians chapter 5 when... Uh, Paul is talking about the fruit of the Spirit. He refers to this peace. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. What's the last one? Self-control. Is there a link between peace in your life and self-control? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so if we live a life without self-restraint, without self-control, we're bringing hardship on ourselves. See, the way of the transgressor is hard. But if we live a life of self-discipline and self-control over a period of time following Christ, well then that peace that we want will be ours. Satan, oh, one other point along those lines. Not only did Jesus come to destroy the work of Satan in this respect, but of course he came to destroy the work of Satan by providing the remission of sins. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 27, Jesus in instituting the Lord's Supper says, This cup is my blood that's poured out for you for the remission of sins. Same phrase is used in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, every one of you, for the remission of your sins. We know what it means to remit a debt, don't we? And so you get a bill in the mail and it says, Please remit 
upon receipt. In other words, you need to pay this off. <laughs> when you get the bill, it's, it's, it's due when you get the bill. And then the debt goes away. You remit the debt, it goes away. Well, Jesus came to remit the debt of sin, to pay it for us on our behalf and in our place. And so he came to destroy the work of Satan in that respect. Satan introduced sin, condemnation, and death. Jesus came to bring righteousness, justification, and life. And he does this through the cross and resurrection. He destroys the work of the devil. I'm almost out of time, and I've gone through one point. <laughs> I said there were four. He came to teach. Go back to Mark chapter 1. We'll talk about these things fairly quickly this morning. I don't want to wear out your patience. In, Mark, in, in the book of Mark here, chapter 1, we find these things being done in the passage. Jesus cast out a demon. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. He heals all who were ill. He goes out to pray alone early in the morning. And we might expect the next day, a, a similar day of healing, healing people sick, casting out demons and so forth. But when Peter finds him out there, he's praying alone, he says, everybody's been looking for you. And he says, let's go somewhere else, to the towns nearby, so that I might preach there also. You see, that's what I came for. That's what I came to do. I came to teach. I came to preach. And so I've preached in this town. Let's go to the next town and I'll preach there. When I preach there, I'll go to the next town and let's preach there. Jesus came to teach. It seems that many think Jesus' mission was social activism, to right all the inequalities and unfairness in the world. The gospel of Christ, I think, does have implications in those areas. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Has some application to people that are poor and need some help, or where an injustice is being done to, to try to correct that. But the writing of social wrongs is not the primary purpose of Christ's coming. What Jesus says, I came to teach. And what did He teach? Well, He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17. He says, except you repent, you'll perish, in Luke chapter 13 and verse 1. In Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, He says, repent and believe the gospel. And so, the, at the very heart of Jesus' teaching was repent. You need to repent. That's, that's not a very popular message today, is it? <laughs> Jesus, I came to teach, and here's what's at the heart of my message. You need to get your lives right. You, you need to repent. To Nicodemus, he says it this way, you must be born again. John 3, verses 3 through 5. In Matthew chapter 5, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who are persecuted. In Matthew chapter 15, and then again in verse 23, he tells us to cleanse the inside of the cup so that the outside might be clean as well. And so cleanse and purify the inner man, your heart, so that your actions may be clean and pure as well. In Matthew chapter 7, he says... Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. And so it's not simply making an affirmation that Jesus is Lord. We've got to follow that up with actual obedience to the will of the Father. In Matthew 15, he says that the traditions of men are of no value. 
to commend us to God. We are to obey God. He sums up our obligation in Matthew chapter 22 by saying, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and your neighbor as yourself. Of course, as the Son of God, Jesus has the authority to teach us and expect us to believe, doesn't expect us to obey. He has the authority to do that. I came to teach, and I'm going to exercise my authority, my right to teach. And when people heard him teach, they were impressed with that authority. He has the right to expect people to obey him. Luke 6, why do you call me Lord, Lord? And yet you don't do the things that I say. You're not doing the things that I teach you to do. And so if we recognize the authority of Jesus, we need to submit and obey what he teaches us. But then he instructed his disciples to teach as well. You remember the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28? Go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them. You go make disciples, and then you teach them. You teach them some more. You teach them how to become a disciple. Once they become disciples, you teach them more, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And so we are to make disciples and teach them all things that Christ commands. And so Jesus says, I I came to teach. That's what I came to do. I understand there are people in this town that are sick and need some help. But you know what I've really come to do is teach. And so let's go to the next town and then the next town and the next town and teach Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we need to be doing that as well, don't we? Which leads us then to the third reason that Jesus came. I came to call sinners. Mark chapter 2 and verse 17. The episode takes place in the home of Matthew, the tax collector. This takes place, verses 14 and 15 say, in his house. Luke is very clear and says that Matthew gave a big reception for Jesus at his house. And so you can see what Matthew has done. Matthew's a tax collector and he's calling all his tax collector colleagues, inviting them to come to the reception he's having for Jesus at his house. And so the tax collectors come and the sinners come. And the Pharisees see that and they're just aghast. How can this man associate with these people, with these sinners? The footnote says of sinners, they are irreligious Jews. One Writer describes them as common people who possess neither time nor inclination to regulate their conduct by Pharisaic standards. They were not acceptable to the Pharisees. They were considered outcasts and despised by the self-righteous elite. When when the Pharisees saw Jesus reclining at the table, what, what, what a close and personal situation that is, isn't it? He's with them. He's reclining with them, with with them, at at the table. And the Pharisees are like, how can he associate this way with such people? These people are unclean. Doesn't he know he needs to keep himself clean? If they want to be with Jesus, they need to clean up their behavior first. And he ought to insist on it. If you want to eat with me, you got some things to straighten out first. And Jesus' response in verse 17 is, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. I came to call sinners. Jesus knew that to call sinners, you've got to reach out to sinners. Not in a distant, impersonal way. Not, well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to mail them an announcement. Or, 
They're over there. I'll, I'll, I'll tell them my invitation to a rock, and I'll, I'll kind of send it over there. And I'll tell them, you know, I'm having a feast, but you've got to clean up your act first before you come to it. Now, that, that just wasn't Jesus' approach. See, the Pharisees' approach was, get your life right and then come. Jesus' approach was, come to me and I'll put your life right. Luke's additional phrase is important in this. Luke chapter 5, verse 32, Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. Now that's an important element of the story, isn't it? He came to call sinners to repentance. And so, though they might be able to come as they are, they can't stay as they are when they come to Jesus. See, come as you are and I'll put your life right. I'll make you what you ought to be. Our work is to call sinners to Christ. Do we sometimes think that you need to get your life right first, then come here where Christ is taught? When you clean up your language, then you can come here where Christ is taught. When you learn how to dress, then you can come here where Christ is taught. When you stop your drinking, then you can come where Christ is taught. That, that's not Jesus' approach. Jesus' approach is, come to me. I'm calling you. Now you come as you are. Now you can't stay as you are. I'm calling you to repentance. But you come, and I'll work with you and bring your life where it should be. Our work is to go out into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the spiritually poor and crippled and blind and lame, Luke 14, 21. To be sure, we call them to repentance. But we must receive all people where they are and teach them Christ. The fourth point is, Jesus came to give His life a ransom for sin. Now that's all the way over in Mark chapter 10 and verse 45. The context of that is, James and John have come to Jesus and asked to sit at the, His right hand and or his left hand. Kind of reminds us maybe of the, the, the dinner table of a king, like King David, Mephibosheth comes and he sits with the king at the, at the table, at the, the dinner table. And he may have a privileged position, be very privileged position to sit at the right hand of the king and, and then at the left hand, you're at the head table, you're sitting by the king. And so they want that pra- place of honor. But their request shows a great deal of misunderstanding. They misunderstand the nature of the kingdom of God. They misunderstand the mission of Jesus, the destiny of Jesus, which is the cross. They misunderstand the work of Christ, the work that Christ would call them to do. It demonstrates a competitive spirit, doesn't it? They're competitive. We want to be first. We want to have the most privileged position. We want to get there before these other guys do. Jesus has just told them He's going to Jerusalem in verses 33 and verse 34. Maybe they anticipated a conflict which would end in a great victory and the restoration of Israel's glory. And they want to bask in that glory of the new kingdom. When the others learn about this request, they become angry. Another sign of a competitive spirit. They're going to get the head table before us. <laughs> And so Jesus begins to explain why their question is inappropriate by explaining the nature of His mission and His kingdom. Mark chapter 10, verse 42. 
Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it's not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you must become your servant. And whoever wishes to become first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Greatness in Jesus' kingdom has nothing to do with being first has nothing to do with greatness, has nothing to do with power or position or rank or dominance. It has to do with humble service. And as always, Jesus shows us the way. The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve by giving His life as a ransom for many. Every portion of the statement is important. He came, speaks to His messianic mission, He served by voluntarily giving His life for others. He gives His life as a ransom, speaks to the purpose of His death, to pay the price necessary to free men and women from sin, a price they could not pay themselves. And of course, the price was His own blood. And He gives His life a ransom for many, for all, for all who will receive it. And so, why did my Savior come to earth? Why would He do that? Why would He leave heaven, the glory that He had with His Father, and come and be treated the way He was? And there could be other statements to add to this, but He came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to teach us the way we need to go. He came to call sinners. To re- Aren't you glad He came to call sinners? I am. Because that's, that's me. That's all of us. I'm glad He came to call sinners. And He came to give His life as a ransom for many. Why did my Savior come to earth? Because He loved us so. That's why. It's manifested in these ways. Well, we hope that we can appreciate what Christ has done for us. And the question then is, what are we doing for Him? If Christ has done this for us, how do we respond to that? How do we repay that? We hope that we repay it with our lives and faithful service to Him. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful. Today, we're thankful, Father, that Christ, your Son, our Savior, has come to earth. We're thankful that He was willing to leave the glory of heaven. And it's indescribable, it's unimaginable what that must have been. And come to this world, come to this earth, walk among us as one of us, experience all the things that we do, and more being shamefully treated, ultimately being crucified on a Roman cross. We're thankful for what He's done for us. And we understand that He's done that because He loved us. Help us understand, Father, that He destroyed the work of Satan, completely undid it, completely reversed it. Help us, Father, to take advantage of that work. He came to give His life a ransom for us, to pay the price for our release from sin. He came to call us to Himself, call us to repentance so that our life might be right with Him. And He came to teach us how that life should be led. And so, Father, we pray that each of us will receive the call, receive the invitation, and that we'll follow Him, we'll follow in His footsteps beginning today throughout the rest of our lives. We're so thankful, Father, that He has come. And we pray, Father, that each of us might receive the call and follow. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.